Good morning. This is Talking Animals. My guest today will be Amy Foltz, co-founder of Chimp Haven, the Louisiana sanctuary for chimpanzees where more than 100 former research chimps will relocate in the coming months to live out their retirement. We'll speak with her in a few moments. Later in the program, we'll also speak briefly with Carol Baskin, the founder and CEO of Big Cat Rescue, about the young woman who was killed by the lion last Wednesday at Cat Haven in California, sort of seeking to get at a larger, more philosophical view of the tragedy and its possible implications. Also as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, we'll give away a new Talking Animals t-shirt. I'm told they're highly coveted and hard to come by. Right now, we're kicking off the show with an animal tune. This is the James Hunter 6 with Chicken Switch here on Talking Animals. James Hunter 6 with Chicken Switch. I'm Duncan Strauss. This is Talking Animals. And my guest today, Amy Foltz, is co-founder of Chimp Haven, the 200-acre Louisiana sanctuary for chimpanzees, where more than 100 former research chimps have begun relocating to live out their retirement. So with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 or emailing dj at wmnf.org. Let's welcome Amy Foltz to Talking Animals. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. You bet. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, uh, you wear uh, a number of hats at Chimp Haven, and uh, a bit later we'll get into the sort of more maybe day-to-day hat you wear as a uh, behaviorist at the sanctuary, especially as it pertains to introducing new chimps there and, and to each other. But uh, but we're already getting ahead of ourselves. So um, <laughs> because another hat you wear is, is one of Chimp Haven's uh, founders, um, maybe you could talk to us about the beginnings of the sanctuary and what factors inspired uh, you and, and the other founders to to create it? Sure. Um, it was a long time ago, actually. We were actually, Chimp Haven was co-founded in Texas um, back in 1995. 
And at the time, I was working at a research facility doing behavioral work and was working with um, our former president and director, Dr. Linda Brent, and with some of our other co-founders. And chimpanzee research was kind of falling by the wayside. Chimpanzees weren't being utilized as much in research anymore. And we all kind of had the idea that maybe chimpanzees could be housed in a more ethologically appropriate way, in a way that's better for the chimpanzees in larger social groups with a kind of a more complex environment and started working towards a solution to a problem um, that was developing at the time. And our, our first chimpanzees didn't actually arrive at the sanctuary until 2005, 10 years later. So we started very grassroots. We had um, a post office box in San Antonio. We sold T-shirts. We were printing newsletters on dot matrix printers and uh, really had some very humble beginnings, I guess. <laughs> well, and it sounds like a, a very long but but obviously careful gestation period, too. Sure, sure. And lots of people were involved. I mean, um, we've had a lot of help over the years from lots of different individuals and had a lot in learning to do along the way about lots of different things. We had the chimpanzee knowledge, but, um, you know, some of the knowledge about land and, you know, permits and regulations and things like that. And and we wanted to do it right. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes that does take time to do things right. Right. No, that's really interesting because, you know, uh, among the, the, the sort of many things I've learned over the years of doing this show is, is that starting an animal sanctuary may not always be particularly difficult just People often sort of back into it. Uh, you know, they're helping after a few animals, and before they know it, they're they're running a sanctuary of, of some kind, some size. But you know, once the place is launched, the far harder part, by by most uh, accounts, is keeping the place going and handling all the work and the you know building the facilities, expanding those, affording the food, veterinary care, keeping the other bills paid, fundraising. So um, it sounds like. Uh, some of you, or maybe all of you, were were sort of steeped enough in that to know, like, hey, let's really take our time. Let's really be, uh, you know, very measured in how we go about this, so that we don't hit the snags that that a lot of those sanctuaries that that again might be more circumstantially are, are born, but then they're they're always kind of struggling uh, thereafter. Yeah, certainly there was a lot of planning involved, a lot of organization involved, and I also think one of the most special things about Chimpaven is that we have a lot of different individuals from different backgrounds um, all working together for the good of the chimpanzees. And I think that's been very important over the years from having architects involved that know something about chimpanzees, from having people from the actual you know, research community also being able to weigh in a little bit, but and the animal welfare community, as well as, you know, a lot of chimpanzee experts um, on our board of directors and involved throughout the years. So, yeah, I think it, it's been very well planned. It's been very well organized. And I think we've done a, a great job um, implement, implementing what we started out to do. Yeah. And that's uh, another sort of pivotal point because also sort of uh, from what I've learned over the years about folks who've, you know, um, started and, and operate sanctuaries that that you know i would at least find it daunting to open any sort of animal sanctuary based on what i know and and <laughs> perhaps more so with with certain animals and and in some ways chimps might be you know near the top of that list just because of their um sophistication and and the needs that they have and and off, uh, of course obviously you know what what they've often been through um sure. before they arrived at a sanctuary so um, yeah they require very specific housing they're very social animals. They are wild animals. They are very strong. They are very smart. And, of course, all of those things need to be considered um, as you're designing a place for them to, to be and to live. Sure. So so one thing, uh, first of all, let me just let people know, um, if you just tuned in, this is Talking Animals. And I'm speaking with Amy Foltz, the founder of Chimp Haven, the Louisiana Sanctuary for Retired Chimpanzees. If you'd like to ask Amy a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663 or email dj at wmnf.org. So, so before we delve further into this, um, uh, maybe you could just sort of explain how the, the beginnings were in Texas and Chimpaven, you know, actually lands in Louisiana. Yeah, sure. Yeah, our beginnings were in Texas um, because a, a bunch of the co-founders were in Texas working at the time, actually in San Antonio. 
And we had started looking around for land and looking for a potential place to put Chimp Haven. And there was a developer here near Shreveport, Louisiana, um, who found out about us through actually another group called Gorilla Haven, which is in Georgia. And they had recommended this developer contact us. And um, they had called us to come look at the land. And we came here. We actually had uh, Dr. Bill McGrew and some of his students. He's a, a wild chimpanzee researcher. They came and took a look at the, the land and kind of the vegetation that's here to see if there were appropriate things for chimpanzees, even before construction began. Um, here in Louisiana, we have parishes instead of counties. And um, Caddo Parish decided to donate the 200 acres, and we are eternally grateful to them for, wow. for the lands that we are on. Um, we're using about 60 acres of the land currently and have lots of room to expand, and we have a, a great expansion plan <laughs> um, right now to, to help bring some of the chimpanzees that are coming um, to Chimp Haven. So that's sort of how we, we ended up here, and construction began in 2002, um, and the first chimps arrived in 2005. Wow. So um, I'm guessing um, that um, based on, on the way you've described this and just the way that you already uh, speak with sort of a great passion for, for chimps, that um, you've just been sort of a, you know passionate about chimps from, from way back? <laughs> um, yeah, although actually the first primates I ever worked with in 1986, I um, was able to spend some time in Panama with uh, Dr. Paul Garber, who's another primatologist, and took a, a primate behavior um, course on Panamanian tamarins, which are very tiny little monkeys. Mm -hmm. And I've actually worked with different types of primates throughout the years. My first experiences with, with chimpanzees um, were around 1989, and I did, did fall in love with chimps. They are my favorite. Baboons are my second favorite primate. Okay. Um, but yeah, my, I think my parents always thought I would work with animals in some way or another. We ha I, I grew up in Michigan and had a forest behind my home and wow. spent a lot of time in the forest. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Although probably weren't too many, uh, too many primates uh, lurking around there. No, but, thankfully. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so then to, to build on that, Amy. So, so you grew up uh, around animals and you had that cool forest, um, you know, and loving animals. Um, so, so then did you kind of veer as your parents predicted, sort of almost immediately in your in your formative or at least college years and, and beyond into uh, studying animals and studying their behavior? No, not actually I didn't. I, I actually started out as a biology major. I was a, a pre-med student when I began, and um, that experience in Panama with Dr. Garber is what kind of led me mm. towards the primates and um, have been, you know, working with them on and off since 1989. And how early on in that, in that career and that path then did, did uh, the behavioral work sort of become a, a particular focus? That was in, in 1989. I okay. Right from the get go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the behavior was, was kind of actually maybe what, what attracted you to begin sure. with. Sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Okay. I'm definitely interested in social behavior. And, and has it been along the way, or at least the first part before maybe uh, uh, Chimp Haven got more seriously launched, uh, was it um, uh, as much about wild chimps uh, and their behavior as it was about captive chimps or? Um, um, I've always been interested in both. Mm -hmm. I think you need to look at the behavior of wild chimpanzees in order to be able to appropriately care for captive chimpanzees. Sure. Um, that's definitely a tenant here at Chimp Haven is that we do try to look at the behavior of the wild chimps and give the, the captive chimpanzees opportunities that might be similar to a wild chimpanzee. They, they are still captive, um, but we can give them the opportunity to climb trees or to make nests in the forest mm -hmm. or to use tools to fish for termites and things that wild chimpanzees might do to live in larger social groups. So. Sure. Sure. Well, that might bring us to one of our uh, emailers, and we'll uh, try to get uh, some emails and phone calls involved here. But one, uh, one email um, says, uh, thank you to your guests for this much-needed work. Where do the chimps go during bad weather like hurricanes? Um, we actually have a very safe, in fact, the people would 
the staff members would probably come here <laughs> if we had any issues like that. We are far enough. A lot of people don't realize we are actually up in the northwest corner of Louisiana. So most of the um, weather that we might get from hurricanes would be kind of the, the remnants as they come up north. We have had in Katrina and afterwards, um, we had winds, we had rain. The, there are, the chimpanzees all have indoor bedrooms that are heated. They have hammocks, they have hay, they have different areas. Normally, the chimpanzees are given access to the outdoors 24-7. Um, but in, you know, if there was inclement weather like that or an ice storm or anything else, the chimpanzees are actually trained to come into a cowbell. Um, wow. They're rewarded with treats or something like that, and we have the ability to lock them inside to keep them safe. We would give them additional, you know, space, additional enrichment items, different things to keep them busy um, in that kind of a situation. Wow, that's cool that the cowbell is a trick. Because as you were describing this, I thought, well, geez, under those circumstances, how do you how, how do you round in? round them up? And uh, they're enjoying their outdoors. Then suddenly, uh, but uh, that's that. And and just out of curiosity, why, uh, as opposed to say other possible, you know, sort of uh, Pavlovian measures, why the cowbell uh, is that just proven to be particularly effective for this kind of? Uh, and it's loud enough. Um, some uh -huh. of our habitats are, you know, we have three, four, and almost five-acre habitats, so they're pretty large. So we needed something loud enough that the chimpanzees would be able to hear. You know, that being said, if it's if it's raining or real cold outside, they're usually inside anyway. Sure, um, yeah. They kind of look at us like we're crazy. Right. <laughs> As we've established, they're incredibly intelligent, so yeah. they don't know to be told certain things. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Uh, yeah. But, um, but the cowbell, we actually did try a, a few different things when we were first trying to come up with something, and we had people stand the, at the furthest point away and see what the people could hear um, at, at the farthest location, and the cowbell was the thing that worked the best. So tell us, um, before we move into kind of the the, uh, the other sort of, uh, I guess, focus of today's conversation, which is the the great influx, I guess, of uh, new chimps. Um, what, what's an aspect of, of chimp behavior that, that most of us would find um, surprising? Um, I always think that people are very surprised that chimpanzees laugh. Um, they have a vocalization which is very recognizable as a laugh, um, and it's, it's a very breathy kind of panty <laughs> kind of a vocalization. Mm -hmm. And wow. they do that a lot of times when um, they're having physical contact with each other. They are ticklish in certain areas. They play and they they laugh. And I think a lot of people are surprised by that and people don't know that. Um, and it's another way that they're similar to us. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the ways they greet each other, they do touch, they do embrace, they do kiss one another, and um, I, people are sometimes surprised when they see those behaviors and, and they recognize them for what they are. And if, and if somebody came that, that um, to, you know, to, to visit or on some event there where they got at least somewhat you know, close to one of the chimps, and the chimp laughed, would, it, would, would that person recognize it as... As a laugh, I mean, is it so similar to the human laugh uh, that it'd say, oh, my God, that, that chimp is actually laughing? I think it would depend on the chimpanzee. Some <laughs> okay, okay, all right. Some of them sound a little different than others. I got gotcha. you, yeah, case, case by case. Yeah, 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 and depend on the, the context, certainly. All right, well, let's take uh, one of our callers, and then we'll get into some of these other matters. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Amy Foltz. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks for your call. I have a question. Um, is there... Well, actually, it's two. It's two part. I, I know it sounds may sound silly, but I was curious as to what music the primates like to listen to. That's one thing, and the other thing was: is there a moral issue with uh, using uh, the the gorillas or the monkeys for um, for parts for humans, like hearts and things like that? Okay, th thanks for, for both questions. Amy, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the music, the, ch the chimpanzees, and I think this is probably, Duncan was kind of asking this too, uh, other things that people are surprised by. Um, chimpanzees are as individual as you and I, and they, they have different preferences. And so different chimpanzees like different types of music. And so I think that really varies. We have a chimpanzee here um, named Chaka who really seems to enjoy kind of more new age kind of music, 
and we have others that seem to enjoy classical music. And so I, I think it just depends. We have a staff member um, here who actually plays the violin and will be playing the violin for the chimpanzees again later this week. Oh, and wow. some of them really enjoyed that. But we've also had African drummers come out and play for the chimps and some seem to enjoy that more than the violin. So it just depends. Yeah, and I guess the one thing you'd probably want to stay away from uh, playing music for, for the chimps is music featuring a cowbell, which would get very confusing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Amy Foltz of Chimp Haven, the uh, Louisiana Sanctuary for Retired Chimps, where uh, more than 100 new chimps will move uh, over the next uh, year and a half, and we'll just get into that with Amy in a moment. But if you would like to um, join the conversation, you can call 81 three two three nine nine six six three or email DJ at WMNF.org. So yeah, Amy, let's let's talk about the whole National Institute of Health decision, the new Iberia Research Center, and Chimp Haven and where those three things uh, obviously kind of intersect. Yeah, well um, the NIH has decided to retire a hundred and eleven chimpanzees from the new Iberia Research Center. And um, those chimpanzees are slated to come to Chimp Haven. We have currently retired 24 of that 111 that are now here, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we are also, we have a campaign called The Road to Chimp Haven, and we're trying to raise funds to retire additional chimpanzees, the additional chimpanzees from New Iberia. The goal of our campaign is $5 million, and we're about halfway there, but um, we are asking for the help of our supporters to ensure that all of the chimpanzees can be retired by the end of 2013. So is the, um, so 24 of the 111 are there now, and is the um, the pace really, I guess, um, of the the balance of the 111 determined by how how the rest of that five million or how how well or quickly the rest of that five million is raised. Um, in part, although we do have plans, we are retiring chimpanzees monthly through May. After that, here in Louisiana, it gets too warm to be um, have the chimpanzees traveling, mm. and then we will uh, hope to retire more chimpanzees. Um, starting back up probably in September, although that's not for certain yet. Okay. Um, and that depends in part on the integration of the chimpanzees that are coming, as well as construction for additional chimpanzees. So, so this might be as good a time as any then to uh, talk something that we alluded to at the beginning of the show. But um, if I'm not mistaken, Amy, one one of your sort of key areas of expertise is is the introduction. So maybe you can walk us through this, like, does part of the process involve introducing some of the new Iberia chimps to each other who may or may not have otherwise had much much contact, as well as, of course, introducing those new chimps to the chimps who've been living at Chimp Haven? Or how, how does it work? Yeah, no, that is exactly right. Um, when the chimpanzees come, they do have to go through a quarantine period. And sometimes they're in smaller groups that during quarantine, we might integrate them with each other depending on where we think they're going to um, end up. And then after the quarantine period is over is when we would start integrating them with existing groups here at Chimp Haven. Um, and, yes, we've been doing a lot of that over the past <laughs> couple months um, and and have more introductions planned for the next few weeks as well. So, yeah, they... It just depends on where we think they're going to go. I often describe introductions as kind of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, we get some behavioral information on the chimpanzees before they arrive, but that being said, it's such a, a different environment for them here. Um, there's new caretakers. It's different types of space. It's a different kind of way of the staff interacting with the chimpanzees. And so oftentimes... They act very different once they're here than maybe what their mm. former caregivers have seen when they were there. And right. so we try to give the chimpanzees the opportunity to show us um, where they might fit in the best and also, you know, trying to kind of figure out based upon their background, have they had much social experience? Have they been just with males or just with females? Um, are they more dominant or not? 
introductions can be tricky just because chimpanzees are territorial mm-hmm. and don't often care for strangers. Yeah. Um, but that being said, we've had some just fabulous introductions where we've introduced the chimpanzees and it's it's been they've been so happy to see one another that they're embracing each other and they're playing within the first 10 minutes of the introduction. Um, and, you know, that's always what I like to see. Of sure, course. sure. Mission accomplished. Yeah. 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 So, so Amy, then, is it always then that, like, let's say as these 24 have came in, first of all, did, did, of that 24, did, did all 24 arrive at the same time or did a grouping of, of that 24 come in sort of... Two, you know, two or yeah, more times. Yeah, no, they all twenty-four did not arrive at the same yeah. time. Um, we our shipper can take about nine to ten, depending on okay. the size of yeah. the chimpanzees each each trip. Sure. Um, and so that's generally the most that would come in a time would be probably nine, maybe okay. ten, depending. And then when that when that nine that first nine let's say arrives, is it always to um, to be then sort of based on information you get and what you and others observe there at Chimp Haven to be sort of added to existing sort of groups or with the sheer number that, that is coming overall, it, is there some advantage um, or need even to, to have some of the new chimps just create their own new grouping? Yeah, certainly. And, and we've kind of been working with um, NIRC to, have the chim- the first chimpanzees that are arriving be ones that we are able to integrate into our existing groups, and then down the line, as we hopefully raise this additional funding that'll cover costs of construction and care for the additional chimpanzees, we'll be having some additional play areas and playgrounds where we could house groups that we would just make out of the chimpanzees that were arriving then. Sure. So it's a little of both. I got gotcha. you. So, so um, just to delve a little further into, so in making those introductions, I mean, what, like, what do you look for, or or even try to cultivate uh, in terms of like social dynamics or hierarchies? Uh, again, you said they uh, tend to be very territorial. So, if I'm part of that that you know first group of nine, let's say, what do you what are you trying to evaluate about me to determine you know where I'll go or how how many of, of of the nine can maybe go here versus there? Well, of course, one of the first things that we look at are medical potential medical issues. Mm-hmm. A lot of the chimpanzees arriving um, may have medical issues, and so their health, their mm-hmm. their physical the way they look physically, you know, are you big and strong or are you smaller and meek? Um, Mm -hmm. Are you a more dominant personality or more submissive personality? Um, Are you friendly to the other chimpanzees that you might already be with or are you more interactive with humans? Um, Sometimes the chimpanzees that have come have been what we call nursery-reared, so they've been raised by people those chimpanzees tend to be more people-oriented than they are Mm -hmm. chimpanzee-oriented. And we also try to have at least a little bit of a mixture of, I mean, most of the chimpanzees coming are are older, although we do have some that are in their teens and 20s. Um, But So an age mixture, uh, a a mixture of more dominant and more submissive personalities, Mm -hmm. um, and... Sometimes if they're older and maybe not as healthy in in terms of, you know, they might have arthritis, we are going to want to put them into a group with older chimpanzees um, that are kind of, you know, living out their lives here. At the same kind of pace. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want them in with a bunch of, of teenagers. Right, right. Like, hey, I can't keep up with these youngsters. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take another call. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Amy Fultz. Hi. Hi, it's you. Go ahead. Good. I'm driving, so I can't hear real well. But I wanted to ask the uh, visitor today about the Chimp Lucy. The Chimp Lucy, uh, Lucy I assume you're that- featured on um, Radio Lab and This American Life. Is that the one? or uh, that- The one that was adopted by the family. They took her in, like, when she was just two days old, it's been a lot of years ago. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder what kind of human-chimp interaction there was going to be and how much the chimps had been affected by being with humans so much in the labs and all. 
Um, well, and one of the things we had talked about was, you know, Th- being a, tr- a chimpanzee that is nursery reared does tend to be more focused on humans usually, and that can actually create problems for them when, when they go into a social group. However, we've had some great success integrating uh, nursery-reared chimpanzees into large groups of 15, 18, and they have to learn, certainly, from the other chimpanzees, um, and chimpanzees learn through observation, and it, it sometimes takes time, but um, they're, they're able to be integrated and to, to be socialized with the other chimps. We've been learning that over you know, the years that we've been here. So thank you for your call, uh, caller. Um, so, so Amy, um, just sort of have a couple more minutes, uh, but I want to cram in as much as I can here. So, so <laughs> when introducing chimps um, or, or when you're evaluating their behavior, what, what sort of proximity do you maintain? Are you always kind of outside a, a cage or enclosure or depending on the chimp and the situation, are you closer than that or... We, um, here at Chimp Haven, we have, it's called a protected contact policy. So there's always some sort of barrier between us and the chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And that's to keep us safe, but it's also to keep them safe. We can transmit any type of respiratory or um, stomach virus that we might have to them. But kind of a, a different sort of issue is they're here to be retired. They're here in their space. Yeah. It's not our space. And um, this is their home. We want them to feel safe. We want them to know that that's their space that we're not coming into. And that being said, we can interact with the chimpanzees. When I'm doing observations, a lot of times I'll have a clipboard or a computer, and the chimpanzees seem to realize pretty soon um, that if I have that computer or that clipboard, I'm not going to play with them. Mm. They kind of That kind of is a clue to them. Now, if I don't have those things, we can play chase. A lot of the chimps like to kind of play chase on the either side. Some of them like to play sort of a game of hide-and-seek. Um, and we do use long-handled spoons if we want to interact and, and touch them. Mm-hmm. Um, we can use that to tickle them. I, I mentioned earlier they're ticklish up kind of between their top of their shoulder between their head and their neck and kind of at their hips. And so we can use a spoon to tickle them or to groom them um, safely. And there there are safe ways to interact with them, but, but safety is a big part of sure. uh, of what we do here too. And I suppose if you tickle them correctly, you'll get that laughter that we've heard about earlier. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, along those lines, and, and obviously this is, I'm sure partly, although you, I know you said it's you know, for, for their uh, welfare as, as well. But, um, the, you know, the safety, I mean, there obviously have been a lot of sort of uh, tragic stories over the years. And, sure. and you mentioned how strong they can be in their, uh, you know, adult chimps, obviously, I guess, are just extraordinarily strong and when upset for whatever reason can be really fierce. And so um, just in our last moment or two, uh, this might hook into a email question um, that came in. It says simply, why would a pet chimp attack someone? We just yeah. have maybe a minute or less at this point, Amy. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll try. That's a soapbox that I could get on. Right. No, I know it's a very complicated, but I thought you could at least touch on it and then we sure, could sort of, sure. yeah. Chimpanzees should never be pets. Unfortunately, there is no federal law right now that prohibits that, although I, I believe there should be. Um, a chimpanzee, as it's growing, they have a dominance hierarchy, and they're climbing that dominance hierarchy as they're growing and getting older. And so to any of us that work with chimpanzees, it is not surprising that as that chimp gets older, the person who's been dominant over them, their owner, most of their life, eventually they're going to challenge potentially that person. Um, and so it, it kind of makes sense if you look at the natural behavior of chimpanzees. The, the other reason chimpanzees shouldn't be pets is they need to be with their own species. They're very social. None of us would want to be taken away from our families. Um, most of the time the chimpanzees are removed from their mothers very young. Chimps actually nurse on their moms until they're five years old. Many times people cut their teeth or pull their teeth when they're pets. Um, so there's, there's lots and lots of reasons why they shouldn't be pets. They can also hurt us without meaning to because of their strength. They could be playing with us and, you know, hit us in play and break one of our bones. So yeah. it, it, it may not be that they're necessarily being fierce it may just be that it's just they don't know their own strength 
Yeah, and it sounds like, unfortunately, when when those kind of uh, incidents happen, that people report that you know at least those adult uh, chimps are you know five six times as strong right. as a you know a very strong fit human. So yeah, it's just uh, like you say, even if it's just inadvertent and kind of playful, uh, yeah, some some really uh, serious injuries or worse could happen. So right, uh, right, they're incredibly muscular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Amy, gosh, we are uh, just uh, now kind of at the end of our time, but I I really appreciate we've been speaking with Amy Fultz from Chimp. Haven, uh, and the website is chimphaven.org. It's a great website, and again, if uh, some of what you've heard today uh, uh, prompts you to uh, look into ways you might help out, and obviously maybe help uh, um, fund the uh, the uh, the rest of that 111 chimps um, relocation, yes. and uh, and just actually, you know what? I even though we're out of time, I I meant to ask this before, and there's a cool video, but uh, that addresses this that I've posted, and many others have too. But maybe just as briefly as you can, maybe you could just address what it's like for these kind of research uh, chimps the first time they actually step outside and have you know grass under their feet, and just kind of what that uh, reaction is like. It's amazing, um, and sometimes they come and they're afraid to put their feet on the grass for the first time, and they have to kind of be desensitized to that, but they do. We have open-air areas. They'll put their feet on the grass, and they might shake their feet at first and look down or touch the grass tentatively, and they look up usually at the sky in the open air, and you can see that in the video. Um, and I also want to mention we're on Facebook and Twitter too, so that's another way you guys can see pictures and, and uh, hear a little bit about some of the daily events at the sanctuary, too. And, and also catch that, that video of, of some yeah. of those chimps the first time, who, again, have been in, you know, cement bunkers or cells or however you want to describe it, and this is often their first time ever outdoors and feeling that grass. It's pretty it's pretty poignant to the video, I have to say. So. Yeah. yeah so, Amy, thank you so much for your time and your great work. And, again, it's uh, Chimphaven, chimphaven.org, and they're on Facebook and Twitter as well, all that you can um, access from their great website. So thank you again for making the time join us today on Talking Animals. Thank you for having me, Duncan. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. All right. In just a few minutes, we'll speak briefly with Carol Baskin, who runs Tampa's Big Cat Rescue, addressing the uh, tragedy of the young woman killed by the lion last Wednesday at that California facility and exploring a, a larger context for how we view captive or even wild big cats. Right now, though, let's step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. This is Karen Rontowski with part of a piece called Animals, Parents, Alligators. On today's Comedy Corner... I'm talking animals. So they argue all the time, and they think I'm nuts. You know, they came to my apartment in San Diego, and my mother says to me, Karen, I, I see you have a futon in your apartment. How do you like sleeping on a futon? And I said, well, uh, you know, it's nice, but uh, it's very low to the ground. And if someone were to leave alligators in my apartment, <laughs> they would eat me. <laughs> And my mother goes, Karen, that, that's ridiculous. Alligators don't eat meat. Crocodiles. Crocodiles would eat you if they were in your apartment. And then my father goes, no, that's not true. If the alligators were hungry, they would eat Karen. It wouldn't matter if they were alligators or crocodiles, they would eat Karen. And then my mother goes, no, they like vegetables. They go for the plants. That's what they like. They go for the plants. And then my father goes, the plants are on the second shelf. They couldn't get to the plants. The alligators would eat Karen. And then my mother goes, no, they go for the refrigerator. There's food in the refrigerator. And then my father goes, they only got them little stubby arms. They couldn't open the door to the refrigerator. The alligators would eat Karen. And then my mother goes, well, you could stand on the coffee stand. They wouldn't eat you if you stood on the coffee stand. And then my father goes, Karen... Who the hell do you know that would leave alligators in your apartment? And then my mother goes, Joan Embry, she works at the San Diego Zoo. She could leave alligators in your apartment. And then my father goes, does Joan Embry have a truck? Could she get the alligators over to your apartment? And then my mother goes, you know, I never liked that Joan Embry to begin with. All right, that was uh, Karen Rontowski with part of a piece called Animals, Parents, Alligators, taken from her album President of the United States. And all right, the Tampa's Big Cat Rescue is the largest accredited sanctuary in the world dedicated entirely to abused and abandoned big cats 
And on the line with us now is Big Cat Rescue founder, CEO Carol Baskin. Good morning, Carol. Morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals, and uh, so let's let's talk about this uh, unfortunate incident with this um, young woman, Diana Hansen, twenty-four year old woman who was killed at Cat Haven, a, a sanctuary sort of east of of Fresno, just just a week ago. It happened Wednesday afternoon, so we of course weren't able to speak about it last week. But uh, so um, you know, as I said to you, kind of in an email, I, I I don't know how much value there is to to sort of you know, reconstructing, like, exactly how it happened or, you know, although I know that's being investigated and looks like there be some more information even today, but but maybe more taking a, a larger, more philosophical view of um, why or how this kind of thing happens and placed maybe in the in the larger, grander context of, of how we view captive or even wild big cats in the role of a facility like... Um, you know, Cat Haven or your facility, Big Cat Rescue, can play in, in fostering a more realistic understanding of the animals or not in some cases. Well, you're right, Duncan. There is a much bigger issue than just pointing fingers and saying who's to blame. Uh, one of the things I noticed that the media has said over and over again is that this happened at a sanctuary. And yet, if you go to the website for Cat Haven, they say that they are not a sanctuary. They are a breeding facility and they call themselves a conservation center, but it's just. Mm-hmm. my opinion, an excuse for breeding cats and having cats. Yeah. But I think the bigger picture here is that, and why it hit home to us so hard, because we have so many interns who come to us from all around the world. And these are people who want to dedicate their lives to helping exotic animals or farmed animals, depending on what kind of um, sanctuary they're going to. But they're being misled by the images that they see in the public. So, this very cat who ended up killing this intern, Couscous, had been dragged around onto, you know, television shows. Ellen DeGeneres had him on there feeding him with a bottle, I'm told. <clears throat> and it gives the impression that you can raise these animals like a household pet and that that animal's going to love you forever. You can go through all kinds of video that's online of people petting that adult cat at that facility and treating him like he was a household dog. And so these interns, these young people who go into a situation like that, I think go in with a misunderstanding of how dangerous these animals are. The people who own them will say, you know, I'm trained, I know how to take care of this animal, and I'm going to teach you how to be a special person too. And then leave them to their own devices after she's only been there for less than two months to take care of a, an animal who could so easily escape and kill her. And that was just totally irresponsible. At our sanctuary, when people come, we have, first off, nobody touches the animals that they can't rescue. I don't touch them. My daughter doesn't touch them. We do not touch the animals. But before a keeper can even be in the sections where they're cleaning the cages for the lions, tigers, and leopards, they have to have spent two years with us taking care of bobcats and servals and caracals yeah. so that we know that they're going to be safe around those animals. Right. Well, that that's the thing. I mean, it, it seems like on the one hand, the sort of the, the small, you know, micro level here is is the protocol and maybe even kind of, you know, how, how Cat Haven operates and what its purpose uh, is. Um, but but the more macro thing, which you kind of alluded to, and I, I think I sort of mentioned this in, in, in my email to you asking to come on and chat for a few minutes with us today about this, is that um, the other thing you alluded to, which I, I, I just seems like there's just another flood of these. I mean, it's kind of cyclical, but there's just been a lot of, you know, videos on YouTube, Facebook, TV of someone who has a quote-unquote special relationship with a lion or a tiger, and they're hugging, and they're hanging out, and they're doing all these lovely things, um, and people, you know, like it on Facebook, and they think, isn't this cool? And, and uh, But, I mean, really, it's not cool. It's not. It's disrespectful to the animal, first off, because those animals are wild animals and should be respected for who they are. And second, it's, it's a lie. Yeah. When you see people hugging those cats, those are youngsters. They may look like adults, but they're almost always under five years old. And when the people start getting killed by their pets is when they get to be four, five, six, seven years old, when they reach adulthood. Um, but the, the misconception that they can portray out there with these younger cats who look like adults, because they get very big within the first two years, makes people think that it's safe at any age. Yeah. And it's just and it's never safe at any age, frankly, because a eight week old tiger can take your pinky off. 
um, it, it's just yeah. It's well, frustrating. Right. Well, that that's the thing because yeah, I mean the really if you reduce it all down, it's it's like hey, this is still a wild animal. It can look cuddly and yeah, if it's young enough, you can actually cuddle it if you're so inclined, I guess, or pay your money or whatever. But, you know, pay it's something Right, right, yeah, well, and, uh, but certainly I think the other thing is um, that at some point, um, that's a much more grown-up cat, and things are going to be different, and whether it's you that were pictured in that video, or someone who saw that video and said, well, geez, uh, this looks cool, and I'd love to have that kind of relationship with a cat, and then, you know, that's the next thing you, you see on the evening news, or read about in, you know, online, is, uh, you know, tragedy has struck again, so, um Anyway, I wish we had more time, and we will maybe devote more time this, the next time you're on, you know, more more fully. But I just felt like, um, you know, as, as much as it's a horrible tragedy, obviously what happened to this woman, there's so many other issues and implications to it that I just felt like we should at least take a moment to uh, include those as well as recognizing, you know, the sad loss of this young woman. And there's so many other places out there where this is just an accident waiting to happen. People are getting their hands all over these animals all across this country, and it's just a matter of weeks or months before you hear about it again. For sure. All right. Well, Carol, thank you. I know you have a meeting to get to, and I just wanted to at least, like I say, devote a few minutes to this. And uh, thanks for making the time to join us again on Talking Animals. Thanks, Duncan. Thank you. All right, I'm Duncan Strauss. Towards the end of the show, which we're rapidly nearing, we'll play Name That Animal Tune. The winner will uh, win a spiffy new Talking Animals t-shirt. That's happening just a moment here on Talking Animals. Right now, though, it's time for uh, what looks to be a truncated version of uh, animal news and announcements. Uh, of course, we'd be remiss to not at least mention the whole red tide um, causing a record number, unfortunately, of manatee deaths in Florida. And... Um, the red tide, I think, so far has claimed upwards of 174, maybe more, um, and uh, because of this red tide in southwest Florida. So just so uh, so tragic and tough. Of course, those, those manatees aren't up against enough things. And then um, in a weird sort of global parallel of some kind, although maybe they found out more that... Uh, but anyways, this came from Beijing. I saw this uh, I think in the New York Times online. More than uh, 2,800 dead pigs have been found in a major river that flows through Shanghai, igniting fears among city residents of contaminated tap water. According to state news media reports, uh, this was on Monday. Officials are trying to determine who had dumped the carcasses into the river, uh, which slices through the heart of Shanghai. Some reports blame farmers. Officials were seeking to track the sources of the pigs from marks on their ears, and a preliminary inquiry found that the dumping occurred in Zhejiang Province, which is south of Shanghai and upstream on the Hongpu River. So, uh, yikes. All right. So, on better, more upbeat news, uh, especially locally, um, thanks to Sean Kinnan, or... Uh, or uh, Assistant uh, News uh, Director here at WNF. He passed along the info uh, just before I went on air that Rick Scott has declared March 16th saved the Florida Panther Day. Finally, a Rick Scott move that uh, doesn't seem dopey. Yay! Um, let's see quickly what else here. Um, speaking of the 16th, there's a St. Potty's, P-A-W-D-Y, uh, party, pet party, 3 to 6 p.m. at the Ale and the Witch in St. Pete. And uh, you can bring your pooch along for a pre-St. Patty's Day celebration. And uh, more information, go to thealeandthewitch.com. And uh, also want to let you know, we talked about this uh, last week with our guest uh, also, but uh, they're showing The Peaceful Kingdom, the award-winning uh, documentary, The Peaceful Kingdom, The Journey Home, Saturday, March 23rd. At 3 p.m. at Jan Kamenis uh, Plant Regional Library, 3910 South Manhattan Avenue in Tampa. And looking ahead a little bit beyond that, the uh, Animal Coalition of Tampa's annual Spaghetti and No Balls dinner and auction takes place Saturday, March 30th at Yingling's Brewery in uh, Tampa. More information at actampa.org. And... Uh, Dietitian and uh, Director of Coalition for Cancer Prevention, George Eisman. Uh, sorry, for Cancer Prevention Through Plant-Based Eating. Uh, we'll be speaking tomorrow at Tampa Loving Hut. And they'll be uh, core, you know, hooked to that, a, a buffet, a vegan buffet all day long. So you can uh, find out more at lovinghut.com. They are at uh, 1905 East Fletcher Avenue. And I think that's uh, it for the moment. So uh, let's... 
Move on. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is TalkingAnimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. This is a giveaway. You do not need to be a WNF member to win. And there'll be a prize. The winner will score a fabulous new Talking Animals t-shirt. The first person who calls in the correct title of this animal song, 813-239-9663. And really, since the shirt's kind of a little extra special prize, we made it a little tougher today. We need the name of the tune, which we normally do. And today, we also need who is doing this version of the tune. All right, it's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals. Keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. We'll be back next Wednesday, March 20th, when our guest will be Michelle Nagelschneider, a cat behaviorist dubbed the Cat Whisperer, whose new book is The Cat Whisperer, Why Cats Do What They Do and How to Get Them to Do What You Want. I hope you'll join us for that next Wednesday. Also, visit our uh, new website, TalkingAnimals.net, where we make available all sorts of information on all our past shows dating back to 2003, as well as archives and podcasts of uh, those very programs. So, uh, all right, let's, uh, we got some folks calling. Let's see if they can get both things. It's not just the name of the song. It's the, uh, it's the artist. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Can you name that animal tune and the artist? Hi, you're on Talking Animals. Can you name that animal tune and the artist? Neville Brothers, Fly Like an Eagle. Wow! I, and I also liked kind of the cool, confident way that you delivered that answer. Like, yeah, I got this, man. I got this. Cool. What's your first name, sir? My name is Terry. Terry? E-R-R-Y. Okay, cool. I'm going to um, come back and get your information as soon as we get off the air and uh, get you uh, get you a, f- a fancy new Talking Animals t-shirt. Congratulations. Thanks awesome, for listening. Bro. Thank cool. you. Thanks, man. All right, Carrie's our winner. We also have a link to the Talking Animals Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, etc. It's all at TalkingAnimals.net. Talking Animals uh, broadcast outreach consultant and Jill of all trades is Libby Busalis. My thanks to her. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. We're closing out today's show with an animal piece uh, briefly, of course, geared towards our conversation with Amy Foltz and Chimp Haven. This is the soundtrack and theme orchestra with theme from Planet of the Apes, taking us up to the NPR News on WMNF Tampa. Brandon Clearwater, Wikiwachi, Largo, and beyond. Thanks for listening. Speak with you again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. on Talking Animals. Thanks.